Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, let's look at the fame of Jesus this morning and consider the message, Serve to Bless. Serve to bless. Last week, I began a mini-series in Matthew chapter 14, and the series is entitled, The Fame of Jesus. And I took that simply from Matthew chapter 14, verse 1, where Herod begins to hear about Jesus' fame. And I, I use that word because that is a way in which the testimonies of the things that Jesus is doing in the world in the first century begin to spread and those who are far from God, who do not believe in God, begin to hear about God and the glory that is his alone. And I say to us this morning that Jesus wants to reorient how we think about the most ordinary, everyday experiences of our life, that he might introduce us to who he is, but also invite us and motivate us as Christians to serve, to bless others in his name. And so I ask you, I ought to ask this every week, I want to ask it every week, but I don't. Are you ready to walk away differently today than you walked in? Because God wants to do something in your heart and life today that changes you forever, changes you forever. Let's go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 13 through 21, and then I'll continue with the message. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. What did Jesus hear? Just to give us context here about the execution of John the Baptist by Herod Antipas. That's what he's referring to here, okay? But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 basketfuls of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Jesus withdraws by a boat to a desolate place to be alone. This is likely in response to the news that John had been executed. He was grieving over John's death. He was weighed down by what he knew was before him because as we mentioned last week, that was very likely for Jesus a cue from the Father that his public ministry was about to begin. 
was about to uh, come to the forefront. And so he withdrew to be alone with the Father. The most common practice we see Jesus doing throughout the New Testament was going away to be alone with the Father. But when he arrived at the shore, we don't know if he went out and came right back or if he crossed all the way over. Doesn't really matter because whatever we do know is that he did it in response to what he had heard about John and he was going to be alone with the father. But the people heard he had gone in a boat and they said, well, he's got to hit shore somewhere. And so they just began to fan out around and waited on him to come back to land. And of course, when word arrived and began to spread where he had landed the boat the crowds began to swell didn't take long for the word to spread and the crowd to grow and it tells us that when Jesus stepped out of the boat instead of going you know what I'm tired I'm weary I've got other things to do it says he saw the people and he had compassion on them he had compassion on them so he healed their sick Friends, no one has ever felt the weightiness of sin's brokenness in the world more acutely than the one who came to make all things new. And his life, he tirelessly served to see people's lives blessed. It tells us that at some point, the disciples who were likely not in the boat with Jesus caught up to him following the crowds themselves. And by late afternoon, they approach Jesus to recommend dismissing the crowd so they can get home at a reasonable hour to eat. But Jesus says, you feed the crowds. <laughs> this was probably a suspicion they already had. They had done a little survey of the crowd to see if there was enough food where they could spread it out. But calculating for this many people on the fly and likely as the crowd was growing is a very difficult task. And they said, Lord, we, we only have two fish and, and a few loaves. I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is what they had was so meager, it was inconsiderable. I mean, these are definitely bought off the three-day-old roll list and probably not more than an already open, half-eaten can of sardines. Let me just put it in perspective for what we're dealing with here. Very inconsiderable. And he says, why don't you tell the people to sit down on the grass and bring to me what you've got? And he brings it and, and the interesting thing is when you tell people to sit down, here's what the disciples would have thought. Oh no, he's moving forward with this. That was a posture that signaled for people to prepare for a meal. That's what Matthew's giving us some foreshadowing into in the text. And so he takes the loaves and fish, he looks to heaven, he says a blessing he breaks the loaves and gives it to the disciples and instructs them to feed the crowd. No doubt they didn't say it, but they were likely beginning to think about how in the world are we gonna pull this one off? And the next thing that Matthew records, the next thing is not how they served people, but that they served people. Not how everything took place, but simply this, all were eight or all eight, not were eight, all eight and were satisfied and were satisfied. And it tells us that what started with one basket ended with 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over, leftovers. We're gonna eat tomorrow and thousands were fed. Now, 
The title of the story is typically the feeding of the 5,000. That was the head count of the men. And Matthew says, but besides, there were women and children. Scholars speculate that there were anywhere from minimum 5,000 plus upwards of 20,000 people that were scattered across the hillside because the representation of counting the men was a representation of families. Many were married, many had children running around, and many had brought their whole families. But with that, Matthew makes no further comment. That's where the story ends. He makes no further comment. But here's what we are left with from Matthew. And I want to take a moment just to pause and let this sink in. Jesus takes a meager portion measured to feed a young boy and blesses it to satisfy the multitude of thousands. Let's sit on this for a minute. Jesus takes a meager portion measured to feed a boy and blesses it to satisfy a multitude of thousands. Why is it important for us to pause here? Two reasons. If you're like me, you've heard this story many times. And one of the most uh, um, likely things for us to do is move quickly past it, recognizing the greatness of it, but not giving it the due consideration that it is worth. And if that's not you, maybe today you've heard this story for the first time or you've heard stories about this story, but not the story itself. And, and, and in hearing it, maybe you're not even a Christian, but for the first time, you, there, there's one really of, of two uh, of inclinations. You dismiss it as pure speculation or, or hyperbole or even to say, well, it's fairy tale. And so you want to dismiss it or just to go, yeah, that was then, but what about now? And I say to you today, both of those responses would be wrong. Not worthy of what Matthew is revealing to us. If I'm honest with you, I'm curious what transpired between verses 19 and 20. When it says that Jesus blessed it and gave it to the disciples to serve to the people, and the next thing we hear is, and everybody got to eat and were satisfied. No, 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 Matthew. I want details, brother. I want to know when it got multiplied. Like every time a disciple came to Jesus, he just had another bro- a loaf of bread in his hand? Or every time somebody took a loaf out of the basket, another one magically appeared? I mean, how did this happen? But Matthew doesn't entertain the details to that extent. Why? He's telling us that's not the important part. Don't get sidetracked, squirrel. Right? Don't get distracted by the things that aren't there. Stay focused on what he is saying. To us. You see, for Matthew, none of those questions are important to record. He is showing Jesus' response to the multitude. He takes compassion on them. Then he reveals what Jesus can do by the difference of what was given to Jesus versus what the disciples brought back to Jesus. And that's where we're headed today. To let the fame of Jesus and his glory stand on the power of the difference he makes by a miracle. That's what I want you to walk away with today, friends. Jesus is the Messiah who is worthy to be served. That his name might spread and bless all peoples. Now, if we look at where this story falls 
in Matthew's gospel, even in the redemptive historical trajectory of the whole message of the Bible, we see that Matthew uh, 14 records miracles. and, And what Matthew is doing is he is framing the fame of Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 14. Herod heard about the fame of Jesus. What is Herod hearing? We looked at the the, the person that Herod was last week and we summarized simply by saying Herod was not a good person. He was a man riddled by insecurity. He wasn't what he knew he should be, but he tried to create a facade so other people would think more highly of him than even he thought of himself. And so when he heard about the fame of Jesus, the feeding of 5,000, the not only walking on water, but giving his disciples the ability even with Peter to walk on the water and, and, and not even knowing who all touched the hem of his garment, but for everyone that did, they were healed. I mean, these are some stories, are they not? That's what Herod was hearing. That's what Matthew is defining for us in this passage. And that's, he's recording a miracle that frame Jesus as the Messiah. The feeding of the 5,000 is the most well-known in the the Bible, or at least one of the most well-known miracles Jesus performed. It's the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. And there's even a couple of different uh, feedings of thousands of people that scholars aren't completely clear. Was this one incident or was it multiple incidents? But Matthew is revealing one thing to us, the identity of who this man Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ of God. Now, I'm going to use the word Messiah this morning and Christ, and I want you to understand why I'm using those words. What do those words mean? Those words are important for Christians because they are explicitly titles of Jesus Christ. Titles, like enthroned titles. Messiah is a word that Matthew repeatedly uses for the person of Jesus because Matthew writes as a Hebrew to a predominantly Hebrew audience who were a whole people who claimed to be awaiting the Messiah from God. And so when Matthew says Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Messiah, he's telling the people that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises from the Old Testament. That's why that title is so important. Christ is another title for Jesus. It's not his last name. It's a title. And Christ is typically used in the New Testament to tell those that are non-Jewish, that are, he, uh, excuse me, that are Greeks and others, that, that Jesus is the one who is God, come from God to do the work of God. He is the Christ. So when I say that Jesus is Messiah, it's to say he's the fulfillment of all of God's promises for Messiah from the Old Testament. He is the Christ. He is the one who has come from God to serve us as only God can. His mighty works demonstrate he is powerful, but more importantly, they prove he is God. If you'll remember, there are two qualifications Jesus teaches us to look for that prove he is God. The first one we see in the way people respond to his teaching. He teaches as one like none other. He teaches with authority, like he speaks the words as if they are his own because they are. He's God. 
But the second one we see from the John the Baptist who in prison sent word to ask, are you the Christ who is to come from God? And what did Jesus say to him? He didn't just say, yes, believe. He said this, look at the works that I do and ask, are they the works that God said I would do when the Christ came? And if one aligns with the other, you know who I am. And when John got word back, John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the Christ of God. That's why this is so important for you, friends, to understand those who were anticipating God's arrival in the first century, specifically John the Baptist, affirmed Jesus as God. You see, Jesus feeds thousands not merely to satisfy their hunger nor to amuse their imaginations, but to command their attention that he is the Messiah of God come to satisfy the great need of their souls. And that's why I say today, Jesus is the Messiah who's worthy to be served, that his name might spread and bless all peoples. Here's how I want to run at this passage today for us. Because there's a couple of things we see. First of all, the affirmation, the confirmation that Jesus is the Christ. But he also weaves in instructions for his disciples in serving his name. His ministry is a training ground for the disciples and for you and I today. And so I want us to look at three motivations and three principles by which Jesus sends his followers to serve his name. Three motivations first and then we'll look. At the end, at three principles. Motivation number one is this. Jesus proves he is the Messiah, the Christ of God. We've already seen this. We need to identify it for what it is. It is truth from God that becomes fueling motivation for his followers. When Jesus received the news of John's death, he knows his time for public ministry has come. And Matthew presents the miracle for the same reason that Jesus performed it. So we see the author of Scripture agreeing with and aligning with the one who is Scripture. That's also a sign for us in the Holy Canon. And he reveals that Jesus is the Messiah. Now what Jesus is doing in this work is, is already been done by God in different ways. We remember that when his children were in the desert, Exodus chapter 16, how did they get fed? The first thing they said when they came out of Egypt is, I'm thirsty, right? And then they began to say, and now I'm hungry. And how did God feed his people in Exodus? Bread fell from heaven and eventually birds arose out of the ground. There's a miraculous feeding of God providing for the needs of his people in Exodus. We see it also how God, failed, uh, how God fed many through the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings 4. So this is not the first time, but what it is is a pattern that demonstrates the work Jesus is doing is the work that God does and has done. You could even argue that the very way Jesus receives the meal, looks up and blesses it and breaks it and gives it to his disciple is a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper that will later come before his crucifixion. So what Jesus came doing was the very works that God had already done and the prophets had foretold. But nothing matters more than this revelation 
that Jesus is worthy because he is God. He is God. And friends, some of you today, for the first time in your life, need to accept this and confess this with your mouth by believing it in your heart. Jesus is God. Of first importance for all who encounter Jesus is this. Not that he was a good man, not that he did a lot of great things, but that he is God and trust him for salvation. And I ask you today, have you settled this in your heart? Have you settled it in your heart? Are you still speculating? Jesus is worthy of all your worship. The second motivation we see is this, that Jesus serves people to meet their ultimate need of salvation from sin. Jesus repeatedly met physical needs. As a matter of fact, this is how he performed miracles. But he always did that to reveal that he is God who had come to bring salvation. His compassion for people regularly demonstrated his mighty acts. But his ministry was not just to minister only to physical needs. He came to address the great need of our soul, our separation from God, our condemnation and damnation from sin. Jesus meets physical needs to invite people to believe for eternal healing that only he can give. And that's what Matthew reveals for us. His focus in how he records this miracle is to say focused on really what Jesus was most trying to communicate. And his power that he exercises in this miracle is really amplified by two details. The first detail we've mentioned, the small portion brought to Jesus, contrasted against the great portions that were brought back to Jesus after his power had been exercised. That's a great detail. Only God could do that. But the second detail that amplifies Jesus' power is how every person was affected by the miracle. All ate and were what? satisfied. What did that mean? Well, whatever it meant, it was true of each one. You see, food spoke to the immediate needs of the people as a sign to reveal Jesus as Messiah who had come to save, but Jesus had come to satisfy their ultimate needs. He was telling them, I am here. My power is sufficient to you to meet the greatest need of your life, eternal salvation. And friends, I tell you today, in light of this second motivation, Jesus waits today inviting you to believe in him. His power, hear me, whatever you brought in the room with you, and we all have brought something, his power will always exceed, far exceed your need. If you've yet to lay it at his feet, I'm telling you before you open your hands to do so, the power he will exercise in your life will far exceed the problem you're holding in your hands. It's just a matter of whether you're going to lay it at his feet or not. It can be a question. It can be a situation. Whatever the case, Jesus waits. Have you trusted him to satisfy the great need of your soul by bringing to him the great needs of your life? The third motivation that we see today is that Jesus sends his followers to serve and bless so people will believe in his name. This is what motivates his followers. Because we believe Jesus sends us to serve and bless so people will believe in his name. 
He performs this miracle to prove that he is God. But for the disciples, something distinctively is taking place here. Jesus draws them into the moment to understand not just what he is doing, but because of who he is, what he is going to send them out to do in the world. How it is that we should live our life for the one who is worthy of us. His compassion means that the disciples are responsible to minister, not to just dismiss immediate needs and elevating a hyper-spirituality to say, we're going to stay focused on this, but rather addressing people where they are found in life and introducing them to where God wants to deliver them to. Surely the disciples learned this one lesson here is that a lack of natural resource never means a lack of spiritual provision in ministry. Christian, do you believe that? Because the next three things I offer to you, three principles for how we as a church must be serving Jesus' name, we must believe that if we are to obey God. He sends his followers to serve in his name that people might believe in him And there is a way in which he has called us to do that. And that's what I want to do in turning us to these three principles for serving in Jesus' name. That not only now with the fuel and the motivation of the truth of who Jesus is, but there is a way in which he is guiding us to serve. The first principle is simply this, that serving Jesus' name is essential to spreading Jesus' fame. If you want him to be known, you need to serve his name, so it can and will be known. This is what he calls us to do. When we come to know who Jesus is, the one thing that we are most convicted about is that he and he alone is worthy of this whole life serving his name. Jesus taught his disciples, not just here, but in every instant and every opportunity, that ministry in normal life circumstances is the most impactful to reveal the most potent of eternal realities, namely that Jesus is Lord. That's why in the most common of situations and circumstances, when we as Christians are living our life to serve the glory of Jesus' name, people go, why in the world would you pause to bother with this? And we really just have one answer because he's worthy. Yes, I've got other things to do. I've got problems that are causing concern in my own heart and life. And I'm telling you this, I'm stopping now to say what I'm going to say or to do what I'm going to do because Jesus is worthy. And he sent me here to this moment to tell you that. This is not just a principle for us to pull out on occasion, friends. This is a principle for us to live in every day. Jesus has not called us to be somebody so we can make him look better to the world. And maybe through that, the world will want something to do with him. He has called us to live as living sacrifices because a living sacrifice is far more potent than any big splash of sham wow that we might be able to offer him. Jesus didn't say to the disciples, you've got to do something, go do it. They said, why don't you bring what you've got to me? Christ followers serve with their whole life to testify that Jesus is worthy and in our serving, inviting others to believe in him. The second principle that we see from this is that Jesus' power is essential for serving his name. 
Jesus counters the disciples' conclusions to teach them to trust his power. And, and listen, friends, in ministry, in pastoral ministry, in leading the church, I'm convicted that I'm convinced that this is one of the most important understandings for Christ followers to take in their mindset, to have a shift of mindset. I want to show you, look at verse 15 and 16 and then 17 and 18. I want to show you something in the text that is so important here. Verse 15 says, hey, uh, you know, we're, we're in a desolate place. They're getting hungry. We need to release them. Very likely the disciples had already kind of had a little huddle, a team meeting, said, look, um, I'm exhausted. Are you? Oh, I'm exhausted. You are too? Good. I'm glad to know. Let's go to Jesus. How do we need, you know, we need to convince him it's time to kind of move the people on, let him go get some rest and we can rest too. And they go, I know. Instead of saying we don't want to do this, let's blame it on the people and say they're hungry. Now that's probably not exactly how they said it, but I know at least a couple of them were thinking that, right? They're like, I'm ready to go home. It's been a long day. And we, we're not anywhere near completing this. We'll pick it up again tomorrow. Jesus, these people are hungry. You know what Jesus said in verse 16? Hode. That's the original language there. Why do I use it? Because I kind of like the sound of it. He stops us in our track, in our pattern of things. He says, Hode, you give them something to eat. And they go, well... And very likely, they'd already sent a couple of disciples out on reconnaissance mission to find out if there was any food that they were going to be able to do anything with. And all they found was this young boy, and they had stolen that poor kid's lunch. His mother was going to be hot and angry at those disciples if they took that away from him. But that's all they could find. And they said, well, Jesus, we, we knew you'd probably say that, so we brought this to you. And Jesus said, Hoday. That's all you got. That's not all I've got. That's what Hode tells them. You got to change the way you think about what you've got and what I have. You got to change the way you think about where you're at, what you want and what I want to do. You see, he reorients the disciples thinking about ministry in normal circumstances. They want to send the crowds away. Jesus says, we're going to feed them. They remind Jesus of how little they have. Jesus invites them to bring their little to him. And then it tells us Jesus blesses and breaks the bread, then sends the disciples to serve, and the next thing we have is a what? A whole day. And that whole day says, everybody ate and was satisfied. Whole day. When Jesus changes the way you think about what you're doing for him, he changes what he's going to do through you. We don't know how, but we do know every person ate and was satisfied. Because Matthew's point was not simply about feeding people. The point Matthew is making is the abundance of power, the abundance of compassion, and the abundance of blessing that Jesus is just waiting to pour out on people who will be served by him. The abundance, friends, 
The amount left over versus the original amount is, is the sufficiency of his power and provision that far exceeds any need that stood in front of him. Friends, listen, we can't cure every hunger, nor will we clothe every nakedness in this world. But we must never dismiss the power of Jesus for that which he has put right in front of us and reduce or dismiss what he wants to accomplish through us. When we serve in his name, we know that our ministry is serving not by our power, but by his. We minister, he multiplies. That's the shift of thinking. It's not just about what we've got, it's about what God wants to do. When you serve Jesus' name, you're not just passing out sardines and cold rolls. We serve Jesus through our strength. And very often in my lifetime, I've realized it's not just through my strength, but it's often in the midst of my exhaustion and sheer weariness or incompetence. But we never serve in our strength. See, serving Jesus means that we consider what he wants to do before we conclude what we can't do. We must counter our natural mindset in order to submit for him to implement his supernatural power. We depend on the power of his name. We're going to take these couple of fish and loaves and we're going to begin to serve them and we're going to see what God wants to do. Maybe he just wants a couple of people to get a little nibble today. No, no, no. He wanted everybody to eat and be satisfied. You see, serving in Jesus' name means that every need and work goes to him before it goes to people. Christ followers serve because, Jesus, because ministry in Jesus' name is always accompanied and accomplished by his power to save. The third principle I offer to you today is that serving Jesus' name changes the servant when we experience his power. This is that last hoday I mentioned to you where Jesus changes our thinking. It's in verse 20 and 21. He gave what he broke to the disciples and told them to give it to the crowds. And that's the last word we have until we get the final report that all ate and all were satisfied. You see, those in the crowd were satisfied by a miracle. But beyond that, it doesn't tell us what took place. They were just satisfied with their eating. That's what we know. Now later, they would hear and understand how it all came about. But consider this, especially Christian, I, I'm speaking explicitly to you and even more so to those of you who are covenant members here at LifePoint. Consider those who did serve. Think about the miracle that they saw in the midst of that serving that manifested right in front of them. It changed as they knew what they started with. I mean, you think about it. 12 men trying to get a finger and a hand on a basket. One basket. Come on, guys. We got to go this way with them. Move your hand. I want to get, I want to help carry this. This is all we got. I want to be part of bringing it to Jesus, right? And so they're fumbling and stumbling and trying to get over to him to go, told you, we don't have much. And Jesus said, that's okay. One basket. He said, here, now, take that and go serve the crowds. Who's going to carry the basket to start with? I'm going to start on the far side. and 
Bill, you stand over here, and John, you right back there, and when it hits you, you just send it back the other way. You know, good ushers, they know, man. They know how to work the crowd, get the basket through everybody. And they handed that basket to the first person. They passed it to the next. Again, I go back to the difference between verse 19 and 20. What happened? When when did the miracle occur? I don't know. Here's what I do know. It did occur. It did occur. And when they were done, they weren't looking for food. They were walking through the crowd looking for empty baskets. Because the food had gotten so much that they needed more to carry it in. And men whom it took 12 to bring a measly basket to Jesus to begin with all brought him their own basket at the end. Did you see what happened? Did you see this? I couldn't believe it. It just kept being there. It kept showing up. Dude on the far right, like I, like I thought he was going to eat the whole basket, but when he passed it to the next person, there was still some in the basket. And then I had to get another basket because it seemed like the food was multiplying right in front of us. Friends, what I'm saying to you this morning is that those who served saw something that those who didn't serve didn't get to see. And it began to change them as they saw the change that was taking place through the multiplication and the gathering of what was happening. They all brought one basket to Jesus, but they each brought one basket back to him. Don't miss that. Friends, the best time to bask in the glory is at the end when all the baskets were coming back. John, you got your own basket. You didn't carry one out. I know, look at Peter. He's bringing one too. And James, he's got his own basket as well. And one by one, when the baskets came back in, the power of God just continued to explode in its abundance. And the glory of what Jesus had done just continued to overwhelm them. But friends, the real power was what was happening inside. When they heard themselves, Lord, shouldn't we just send these people home? We don't have anything to give them. We don't have anything to offer them. Instead of going, what did we bring to Jesus? Friends, I tell you, you got to be present when the baskets are collected if you want to behold the wonder of Jesus' miraculous power. Showing up week after week, serving to love people, encourage to teach people. It's like passing baskets. You bring it up and you go, I don't know if we got enough for you today. Maybe one of you will get a little nibble of something. But I don't know. But weekly faithfulness in serving, friends, it can be exhausting. And the evil one will make sure of every opportunity to discourage and cause you doubt. But when you serve faithfully and you watch the slow change of a, of a child learning about and learning to trust Jesus, when you see in a student's life that Christ is beginning to be formed in their thinking and in their affections and in their heart, When you show up to community group and you're tired and your stomach's actually doing more participating than you are because you didn't have time to eat all of dinner before you got there. But then someone shares with the group a need and the Spirit of God just begins to show up in ministry and in words of encouragement and counsel and, and in prayer and in ministry to one another. And you go, wow, I couldn't have been anywhere else on this earth than right here tonight. 
You stand at the door every week and you make sure that when people come in, you offer a simple smile and a welcome. And you cause walls of separation between them and God. What they've understood about the church to just fall. This is not inconsequential. You bring a little. Just make sure you take it to Jesus before you give it to anybody. Yes, the daily, weekly, and seasonal demand of ministry, it's exhausting. I don't just mean for us in vocational ministry. I mean for the church. I know, you're working a job, you're trying to raise a family, you're trying to live right, you're trying to do all of these things and just tagging one more thing on it can seem like it's overwhelming. I'll be honest with you, I never find my energy sufficient for the demand of the work. Never. But when that first basket comes in, I say, maybe all wasn't complete waste. And by the time the last basket gets brought in, I've shut my mouth and I'm just listening to the testimonies of how people who hungered ate and were satisfied. How people who were broken were served in Jesus' name. And God's healing their heart. He's restoring their marriage. He's setting them on the right path. He's destroying memories of brokenness and sinfulness that have enslaved them. And he is setting them free to walk in righteousness. I'm seeing dads baptize their children. And I know things that God wants to do in the home is taking place. And that we are encouragers and helpers in that. And you are. And friends, that changes the servant. I want to be there when the last basket gets brought to Jesus. I want to be there when the last teacher walks through the community room headed to the car. Who tells of the morning. Who tells of the last season. About the questions kids are asking and the things that they're working through hear the goodness of God and how his power is impacting people and life point I want you standing with me in the last basket and the glory of God comes to full bear upon the life of our church the miracle of Jesus's power is always most powerfully displayed at the end of the day and that is the moment your heart is changed because you've beheld the glory of Jesus' power.